Hey everyone, welcome to Book Circle Online. Today I am in studio with Kathleen Sharp. She is an award-winning journalist. She's written for the New York Times, Vogue, Vanity Fair, pretty much any publication you can think of. She is also an expert in entertainment. She has written multiple books, including Mr. and Mrs. Hollywood. Let's talk about all that and more coming up. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. <laughs> I like that music. It makes me feel like a little like, yeah. fancy, you know, nightclub-y-ish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> coffee house. More <laughs> coffee house. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Book Circle Online. I am Zoe Hewitt, and today I am in studio with Kathleen Sharp. Kathleen, where can everyone find you on social media? You can find me at Sharp, author on Twitter, and KathleenSharp.com on my website. Excellent. And I am Zoe Hewitt. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at RealZoeHewitt. And now I've got to ask Mr. and Mrs. Hollywood, this is considered now possibly going to be the preeminent expert autobiography about the Wassermans. And they had such an interesting relationship, Lou and his wife. So what made you decide to start writing about them? Well, it's really the secret history of Hollywood. This is You'll learn things in this book that you do not know about our culture, about mm-hmm. politics, our economy. Mm-hmm. And I had seen Wasserman and, of course, Edie and Lou, who owned Universal Studios, pretty much. But I realized that no one had ever written a dual biography, first of all, of any mogul, and no one had even looked at Lou Wasserman's life. So I said to my agent, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a biography of Lou Wasserman. And then, once we sold the book, I realized why no one had ever done it. He didn't give interviews. So I spent many years sort of circling the wagon and talking to something like 400 people, anyone from Gregory Peck, Tony Curtis, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter, Nancy Reagan. And slowly but surely, you know, I got to Wasserman, Mm -hmm. thanks to Steven Spielberg, Mm -hmm. who thought that his mentor, you know, the godfather of Hollywood, was Mm -hmm. so important that other people had to really learn about him. Mm And for Lou, that was almost one of the key elements of his success, right? He kept, he always said, right, he kept his head down, out of the spotlight, no interviews. So how do you think even Steven Spielberg was able to convince him to talk to you? Well, I think Wasserman at that time was in his 70s, and he was uh, very well respected. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole new sort of mogul coming in, a Mike Ovitz, very, you know, cutthroat and ruthless. Not that Lou wasn't, he surely was, but he was a gentleman, too. And uh, Edie was his right-hand man, and she kind of tended to the social aspects and had the parties and made sure all the starlets and the Mm -hmm. stars and the politician's wife were taken care of. Mm -hmm. And you don't have anyone like that today operating to the extent and to the power that they had for 60 years. But I think that um, Lou was getting on in his life. No Mm -hmm. one had really... uh, written the definitive biography, dual biography of he and his wife. Uh And so he trusted Spielberg, who, of course, was his protege. Uh Uh, Without Universal and Wasserman, Uh Steven Spielberg would not be as great a talent as he is right now. Absolutely. And you have a fantastic story in the book that I love, actually, about Steven Spielberg and how he got his production company there, how that happened. So will you share the story? Oh, I'd love to. (laughs) Yes. Well, Steven was kind of uh, always, always uh, sneaking around the lot, you know, as a teenager, early 20s at Universal. Mm -hmm. And he didn't go to film school or anything like that. But he did find a mentor in Sid Scheinberg, who was Lou's vice president. So Sid let him do a movie about a shark. 
And the, they flew them all to Maine, and they had uh, disaster after disaster. Mm-hmm. And um, it was so bad that Lou Wasserman sent Sid out there to see if the kid could finish the movie. <laughs> and um, Sid made sure the kid did, and he brought it back to Universal where they edited it mm-hmm. with a genius female editor. Mm-hmm. And voila, mm-hmm. it it was a coherent film. Mm-hmm. But what Lou Wasserman did was something that no one had ever done before, mm-hmm. which was to advertise a movie on television. Okay, this was mm-hmm. in the 70s. You've got to remember mm-hmm. when uh, movies were rolled out very slowly with billboards, mm-hmm. one town at a time. Mm-hmm. And instead, Wasserman just slammed uh-huh. all the TV waves, you know, for one weekend with um, news of Jaws. Mm-hmm. And there were so many theaters who had just jam-packed, Mm-hmm. audiences with crowds lined around the block and it was a huge mm-hmm. hit. And I love your point about advertising on television because backing up closer to the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. there is an interesting point about how audiences had changed and the movie studios were having trouble because television audiences were different than the movie audiences and they weren't realizing that discrepancy. So do you think Lou was really ahead of his time realizing where the audience was going to be going? I think he was very futuristic. He did have that, but he also was very desperate. You know, he put a lot of money onto this uh, in the 70s. The studio wasn't doing all that great. It was just before they started to boom with things like uh, The Sting, um, all these other great movies that came out, the bearded ones like Dennis Hopper, Easy Rider. Those films were just starting to come out, and Wasserman saw that it was smart to invest in these bearded wonders like Steven Spielberg. So it was more the talent side, but he was also very savvy about what young people mm-hmm. uh, would love. They love to be scared. And Universal, <laughs> right. after all, is the home of Frankenstein, right. you know, all those old movies. So mm-hmm. he was smart enough to capitalize on that, too. And later, he did make a great deal with Steven Spielberg, and I should say, really great for Steven, because he gets 2% of ticket sales to Universal. Is that right? That's right, to Universal Theme Park for any of his jaw uh, rides uh-huh. or um, Jurassic Park. So Um, Stephen has been very good to Universal, but Mm -hmm. Universal has been fantastic to Stephen, too. And I think he knows that. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, that is an amazing relationship. And that amount of money coming in from theme parks is almost incomprehensible to me that that's not even his main career. Right. (laughs) And yet he's got these theme park rides that are generating, what, billion? Would you say billions? Is it that much? absolutely. But I think the entertainment industry itself is a trillion dollar Mm -hmm. industry. And I'm talking music, DVDs, TV, Mm -hmm. everything. It's theme parks. So it's Uh an enormous industry Uh that's very careful about what it discloses financially. Uh Right. I mean, you would have to be, right, if you don't want to pay out your 2% back end. (laughs) You've got to shift that money around. And early on, back to television for Mm -hmm. a bit and Lou, there's an interesting story about the game show 21, and it made me think a lot about current day. And so much of this book, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that it was, it's from decades ago, Mm -hmm. is very timely. And it talked about how the game shows then were actually rigged and nothing was real. And so how is it that you think viewers, even today, I think, have trouble discerning real from real. (laughs) Excellent question. I think a lot of viewers do have a hard time uh, not realizing that um, when, for example, Donald Trump, a game show host, says you're fired, Mm -hmm. it is scripted, actually. Mm -hmm. And that people who are the apprentices, you know, Mm -hmm. who show up, have been carefully selected. Mm -hmm. And that reality TV is not 
real at all, um, nor has it ever been in America. But I think what's happening now is that Hollywood has become so very powerful, mm-hmm. you know, with the images and the logos and mm-hmm. the women and the men that uh, people confuse it with power and mm-hmm. smarts. And perhaps that's one reason why we mm-hmm. see now um, a game show host essentially right. running the country. And no matter what you think of uh, Donald Trump, there is a little disturbing um, sort of precedent that we're seeing. And mm-hmm. this has happened for many, many years. And Lou mm-hmm. Wasserman was sort of in, you know, uh, instrumental in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, right. who had wonderful mm-hmm. theatrics, but mm-hmm. had a hard time governing California. Mm-hmm. Or we had Ronald Reagan, you know, so avuncular in that warm mm-hmm. Uncle Ronnie voice. But he mm-hmm. had a hard time, um, you know, running the country, mm-hmm. especially for middle class people. So um, I love looking at Europe because Mm -hmm. their policies are very, very important. Mm -hmm. But here in America, we love personalities. (laughs) Who doesn't love a good personality, (laughs) right? And you talk also about how even Dwight Eisenhower was coached for television appearances. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. And I've heard also that like Roosevelt never would have been elected if people had seen someone in a wheelchair. So this is something that goes back. It's not knew that people are fascinated by what they see on television. No, and we're such a vast country. You know, we are many times bigger than Europe. So you have to have some sort of central a way to dispense messages, and mm-hmm. TV has always been that. Right. You know, there was radio before, but now TV or any screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we... I think American people, though, are very, mm-hmm. very smart. I think they're beginning to see mm-hmm. the danger you know, and confusing Hollywood with Washington, D.C. So um, it's certainly to our benefit to go back to uh, (laughs) people who know how to actually govern. (laughs) And that said, Lou was even invited to be part of President Clinton's cabinet. And he turned it down. That's right. uh, LBJ's cabinet. LBJ, excuse me. Yeah, right. He was so... You know, Hollywood had been shocked in the 1940s because the Mm -hmm. Department of Justice came in and broke the monopolies of all the six studios. Mm -hmm. They not only produced movies, wonderful movies in the Mm -hmm. 30s and 40s, they had all the theaters. Mm -hmm. And so that couldn't go on anymore in the 40s. And that scared Mm -hmm. people like Lou. Mm -hmm. So he started cuddling up to uh, and cultivating Mm -hmm. uh, stars like George Murphy, a song and dance Mm man. He... Uh, Lou made sure that he became a California representative. Mm -hmm. Um, Reagan was very much under Lou's uh, wing. So what you had was um, basically a mogul Mm -hmm. sitting cheek to jowl with uh, Kennedy, Mm -hmm. with uh, LBJ, uh, with Jimmy Carter, and Lyndon mm-hmm. Johnson really admired Wasserman so much that he asked him to be his Secretary of Commerce. And I think almost the key then, the postscript at the end there is, he said no, he thought he had more power in Hollywood. He wanted to remain a big fish in a uh-huh. small pond rather than a small fo- fish in a uh-huh. big pond like Washington, D.C., Which seems funny because I feel like being a big fish in Hollywood, because Hollywood is so pervasive worldwide, is still a big fish. I don't think of it as a small pond, I guess. Well, and everyone in in Washington, D.C. comes through Hollywood, you Mm -hmm. know, to get the money that they need to advertise on television. (laughs) (laughs) It goes full circle. (laughs) Right, right. So so Lou has always been a big fish here, both Mm -hmm. not just in Hollywood, but in the Democratic circles. Mm -hmm. And his arch nemesis, uh, Taft Schreiber, was a big fish in the Republican circles. Mm -hmm. So... Um, they were very, very savvy to play both sides of the political aisle. Right. And do you think he would have gotten as far as he had in his career without Edie? 
No, not at all. When I got into reporting this story mm-hmm. and really understanding who Edie was, mm-hmm. I realized why. Mm-hmm. Lou Wasserman was as powerful as he was. Edie grew up in Cleveland, just like Lou. Mm-hmm. But her dad was uh, the attorney for the mob, uh-huh. the Cleveland mob. Now, uh-huh. you may not know much about Cleveland mob, uh-huh. but there's two things you need to know. One, they made great bootleg liquor, uh-huh. uh, which also made it to the White House during Harding's <laughs> era. And number two, they founded Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So if it weren't for... Um, Edie's father, Mm there would be no connection to this wonderful entertainment capital in Las Vegas, Uh where uh, actors who weren't working on TV or weren't working on movie Mm -hmm. sets could entertain Mm -hmm. the crooked noses (laughs) on the stages. Uh And of course, Mm -hmm. Vegas is now a huge multi-million dollar business, multi-billion dollar business. So, um, but it also, as you know, probably... The mob was in the unions in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. They were in the electrical unions. They tried to get into the actors' union. Mm-hmm. So Lou knew these people. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to negotiate contracts with the studios mm-hmm. and the unions, there was Lou. <laughs> you know, talking to his buddies from Cleveland or mm-hmm. Chicago and dealing with the actors who mm-hmm. had no clue that this was going on. <laughs> Playing both sides yet Playing again. Playing both right? sides. <laughs> the man in the middle. Yeah. Do you think of Lou as a feminist because of how much he embraced what his wife could bring? Well, his mm-hmm. wife was a very strong character. You know, she was only 5'2 yeah. or so. But if mm-hmm. she had been born 20 years later, she would have been the head of a Fortune right. 100 company. And he realized mm-hmm. he couldn't do it without her. Mm-hmm. He was always in the boardroom. Right. She was always in the bedroom. Right. You know, whether flirting with, uh, you know, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin mm-hmm. and signing them to MCA. Right. Or talking, trying to convince Janet Lee not right. to divorce Tony Curtis. Right. So she held her own in a different sort of field. And no, he could not have done it without her. And the amazing thing is to me is you Mm -hmm. don't see a couple like that anymore, here in Hollywood anyway. Right, right. And that's why it made me wonder, is he a feminist that he is embracing what his wife can do, or is he more that he's opportunistic, that his wife can help him so he's going to take advantage? Well, we've heard of that phrase, Mm -hmm. uh, the power behind the throne. Right. That's what Edie was. I don't think he was a feminist. In fact, when I did interview him... Uh Uh, we all know that women earn less than men. Right. And that's very true in Hollywood, as we've right. come to find out. So I asked him, yeah. you know, there's great directors, there are great screenwriters who are female. Mm-hmm. You want to save money, why don't you hire them? Uh-huh. And he didn't really answer. He's very much a man's man. And he didn't really, unlike uh, the creator of Universal uh-huh. Studios, Uncle Carl, he did hire a lot of women back in mm-hmm. the 20s. And he did it um, out of necessity, but also he saw, wow, these women were really mm-hmm. great writers and directors, and Universal City was like Shangri-La to females <laughs> back in the 20s, mm-hmm. but the, not, not with uh, in Lou's era. Not with Lou. Yeah. Interesting. So it was just that, that power, that continued quest for power for him. Then. Right. And his partner, you know, <laughs> she worked behind the scenes, and he, right. was, he was, you know, right there working the other kind <laughs> of levers. Yeah. And so... You, I know you do a lot of keynote speaking, and one of the th- topics that you have is about the lessons you can learn in management from Hollywood. So I'm curious because a lot of what we see of Lou is are things that I think now are coming to light in current day media as inappropriate. Yes, yes, <laughs> he, right. He was very abusive in a lot of ways. Yeah. He talked about talk, his employees as kick dogs. So I'm curious, where are some of the parallels? Where are some of the things that you think people can learn from management styles and from Lou in particular? Well, I've, I've seen a lot of the tech mm-hmm. guys like Steve Jobs mm-hmm. actually adopting a lot of Lou's um, tactics. A lot of uh, men in the tech industry like to instill fear and competition. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, there's three things that I really remember. One is that 
you know, as owners of a business, we should not get in the spotlight. It will fade our suit. Mm-hmm. You know, our our um, people who work with us, our clients, our stories, those mm-hmm. are the people who should be uh, front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is uh, to sort of have competition, healthy competition, mm-hmm. but not to the point where you are fighting in-house because mm-hmm. that's very, very destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think uh, Lou was very brilliant mm-hmm. in one way, and we haven't seen this for a long time. He made sure that the working man, the guy mm-hmm. behind the camera, mm-hmm. the set designers, the union people got mm-hmm. a big piece of the pie um, mm-hmm. as the uh, fortunes of Hollywood rose. So you do have to mm-hmm. share and spread that. And the middle class mm-hmm. was wonderful, you mm-hmm. know, very healthy in the 50s, 60s, and 70s mm-hmm. here in Hollywood because of that. So share. And that is interesting because, right, a lot of the unions you don't see, you don't see them sharing the same way. (laughs) It's just like the back end and partaking. And for anyone who doesn't know what the back end points are, that's when a movie has a, or a TV show has a big deal and they say, we'll give you a percentage basically of profits, which can add up to a lot. Like 1%, even half a percent can be a lot of money. Yeah. And just, they don't have somebody there. Um, negotiating in a third-party way mm-hmm. on behalf of the uh, union, mm-hmm. the working people, mm-hmm. and for the moguls, you know, the uh-huh. owners of the studios. And that is what Lou always did for the 60 mm-hmm. unions that, you know, happened yeah. in Hollywood. So um, we miss that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, especially all the below-the-line people. Right, that's right, yeah. And it is interesting, too, how some unions are so much stronger than others as well and where that negotiating power is. Yeah, but he was a real workaholic, you know, uh-huh. he... He loved. He was a groupie too. Mm-hmm. I mean, he loved, you know, actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. He was smitten by Barbara Stanwyck, you know, mm-hmm. and Betty Davis. And um, I think you had to be that way to mm-hmm. really tolerate the tough parts of those personalities. Mm-hmm. But that was. They both were enchanted, mm-hmm. you know, by these people who brought magic to our lives, mm-hmm. and that an inability to tell reality from right, reality, right? right. <laughs> And that very, you know, that wonderful power to fool us all. <laughs> yes. It's like a magician's trick in some ways, but a magician's trick, you know there's something going on. Right. And it's harder to remember that, I think, when you see it on screen. Yeah. Even, yeah. I mean, I think even working in the industry sometimes and watching reality shows, it's hard to remind yourself, okay, this was all written. <laughs> this, right. Yeah. This is not legitimately right. reality. <laughs> yeah. Or it was based on a true story, but we took a lot of poetic right. license. or right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Those designations with films, the based on or inspired yeah. by, you know, or vaguely Loosely. based, <laughs> very right. vaguely based on a dream. <laughs> we talked to her once. Yeah. And we imagined a conversation. Right. <laughs> that reminds me of like the new movie, I, Tanya, where they did it based on interviews and the interviews were completely contradictory too. Yeah. But watching it, you feel like you're watching a documentary. Yeah. Even knowing, even at the beginning, they put the disclaimer that it was based on contradictory interviews, and still it feels that way. Yeah, yeah, very clever. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you feel this, but I think people right now are very hungry for true stories mm-hmm. up on the screen mm-hmm. and also, you know, on the small screen. Um, we have a lot of newspapers that are kind of struggling. Mm-hmm. We have so many stories that aren't being told. Mm-hmm. And I'm so delighted to see people like Steven Spielberg, for example, mm-hmm. with The Post, mm-hmm. take on a real story and, and mm-hmm. take us back in time to what actually happened mm-hmm. with the Pentagon Papers or... Or, um, you know, spotlight and what happened mm-hmm. with the Catholic Church. So I'm really um, heartened yeah. by the hunger from the American public to know more about the world we live in. Mm-hmm. 
But with the post, and maybe this is somewhat generational, I felt like watching it, mm -hmm. they had to really explain why she was so impressive. And I felt like Sarah Paulson's character, that was almost the only reason she existed, was to say, like, let me explain to you <laughs> why she's so great. So right. I feel like, depending on the generation, it felt like, oh, I remember this, or... I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you agree that it, uh, there it was some a part, little loose in that Yeah, way? it was, it was. But um, I admire the effort, especially yeah, from somebody who does Jaws or Jurassic Park. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. I really yeah. applaud that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And almost ahead of its time because now we're hearing so much with the Me Too movement and let's put women forward. And this was already being shot. <laughs> like this wasn't even meant, sorry, it wasn't meant to be part of this movement. And yet it right. came in at exactly the right moment yeah. for it, too. Yes, that's true. So it was in the air. <laughs> it was in the air. <laughs> and as someone who works in a male dominated field, I know you've published also under gender neutral names. Is that right? Yep. <clears throat> KT Sharp for a while. Uh -huh. um, Kenneth Thomas, you can call me. <laughs> <laughs> and so what made you decide to start publishing under a different name? Well, I think uh, when I started in the uh, late 80s and 90s, it was in the business press, which was a great way, you know, or on the business desk of a big uh -huh. paper. And men were always the story. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt like I was taken more seriously as a KT. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But then I realized that there come there's power from being a woman, being, having a female perspective, mm -hmm. you know, we raise families, we watch our budget, mm -hmm. we have concerns that maybe our husbands or our brothers and fathers don't. Mm -hmm. So, um, and also, you know, this is something I learned from Edie. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a time when Hollywood uh, and Washington, D.C. used their sexuality. Women mm -hmm. did use their sexuality to achieve their own ends. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And if someone got fresh... You know, you brought out the slap. Right. So these were very powerful women who weren't afraid to use their femininity to get what they mm -hmm. wanted. Now, I'm not saying I did that as a journalist, right. but um, you do stand out, you know, mm -hmm. when you're in Washington, D.C., in a press conference mm -hmm. uh, that just got called because an FDA drug is killing people. Mm -hmm. And if I raise my hand, I know that I'm going to stand out and I get mm -hmm. to ask a question uh -huh. uh, right up there with The New York Times, The Washington right. Post, or all the other guys. And so how did it feel then? Was it almost like novelty's sake? Like, I'll get called on because I'm the unusual one? Um, I didn't think about that. I just uh -huh. had my question, and darn uh -huh. it, I wanted an answer. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless. You know? It's funny, because looking back, I mm -hmm. feel like then you can see how pioneering it was. But in the moment, you just wanted to ask your question. Right. And this mm -hmm. was, you know, not too long ago. This was only 20 years or so mm -hmm. ago. Right. So I can't imagine what it must have been, you know, in the right. 50s or the 60s mm -hmm. when women had to just report on mm -hmm. society and they couldn't report on politics right. and they had to be up in the balcony, you know, mm -hmm. in the, uh, in the congressional mm -hmm. halls. They couldn't be down on the floor with the guys. Yeah. So, um, it kind of makes me mad now when I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it it's true. And, and it's amazing how just 20 years make that difference. But it makes me think like on Shark Tank, uh, Barbara, one of the sharks, uh -huh. even says she used to wear like short skirts and her legs were her thing. And mm -hmm. if she could take advantage of that, then... Like you're saying, by all means, take advantage so that she could get... Well, it's who we are. You know, we shouldn't hide. I mean, for a while I did kind of hide with pants and, you know, the, yeah. the jacket and all. But um, it's great. We love men and women. And yeah. it's a nice blend to have that in all of our stories. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of FDA drugs, you've written mm -hmm. another book that's being adapted for the screen called Blood Medicine. Can yeah. you tell me about that a bit? Well, that's an amazing story. It's the same drug, by the way. It's called EPO, mm -hmm. but it's the same drug that um, Lance Armstrong used to win all those Tour de France. Uh -huh. 
And so you uh, inject it in you, and it's supposed to multiply your red blood cells so much that you can climb an alpine mountain. But it was for cancer, and it turns out that it multiplied the cancer cells so much that it killed people much quicker than it should have. Um, so people who had read Mr. and Mrs. Hollywood called me mm-hmm. for three years, these two salesmen. Mm-hmm. They were good buddies. You know, yeah. one guy from Seattle, blonde hair, his sidekick, uh, Dean yeah. from uh, Tucson, dark hair. And they loved, they were honored to mm-hmm. sell this drug. It was the first biotech drug yeah. ever, EPO. But then slowly but surely, they realized that they were helping to kill people, and they came to yeah. me with this tale. So um, they had all these documents, all Uh these party videos, all these Mm -hmm. pictures. They were pharmaceutical salesmen Uh who would essentially bribe doctors and hospitals Uh to buy a lot of this drug. And it turned out to be, you know, one of the first uh, stories, books on what we call, you know, a big crisis today, which is Uh our pharmaceutical mess. And do I understand correctly from reading about it that at first they did not realize what was happening and then they were asked to do more and more, like bribe the doctors? That wasn't initially part of what they were doing? Did I misunderstand? No, no, you're right. It was actually just a blood Mm -hmm. supplement. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a drug at first. Uh And then the companies marketed it off-label or illegally, Mm -hmm. and they began Uh to press it, press it for Mm -hmm. cancer, for, and they Mm -hmm. wouldn't test it. Or if they did test it, they wouldn't come out with the results Uh right away. And then they started marketing Uh it to women for postpartum depression or for fatigue. Uh So if we had just a little trace of cancer in us, Mm -hmm. it would multiply that so much more that many people were dying not Uh only of Uh cancer, but... Uh, too much red blood cells will make mm-hmm. your uh, aneurysms, you'll have blood clots, even uh-huh. heart attacks. Wow. So uh, many, many hundreds of thousands uh-huh. of people died. And so is that right for class action as well? There have been class actions. There have been uh, whistleblowing suits. And the two mm-hmm. men that came to me uh-huh. had uh, mounted a whistleblowing suit. And so it was really um, amazing to travel with them on the sales road. You know, they were like Bing Crosby and, uh, um, you know, Frank Sinatra or something, the way they drank. But, um, you know, and then to go to the courthouse and to go Mm -hmm. to federal district and to see what kind of deals the lawyers are making behind the scenes or what you have to come up with, what a judge Mm -hmm. will demand in a whistleblowing case. So it was really quite a journey and um, I'm hoping to turn it into, with my partner, my production partner, a um, multi-part TV series, either on cable or Netflix. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) And so how does that work when you're adapting your own book? Well, uh, it's Mm -hmm. tough. Uh Uh, You have so much research, you know, you Mm -hmm. have boxes and boxes and boxes. But you go for the heart, you know. Mm-hmm. What are the scenes that really are really jump out at me? Uh-huh. What is the emotional heart of this tale? And it was about two men who mm-hmm. loved what they were doing and slowly and surely realized mm-hmm. they were murderers, right. um, which is shocking. And right now when everyone's aware of how their drugs are uh-huh. way overpriced right. and sometimes don't work, I think 70% of Americans, mm-hmm. even though we're 5% of the world population, 70% mm-hmm. of us take more drugs than anybody else. Right. Um, which is disturbing. And again, yeah. it goes back to TV. Right. We see and those advertising. advertisements, yeah. you know, we want to be uh, really active and energetic yeah. and yeah. that <laughs> pill will give it to us mm-hmm. or that shot Yeah. instead of doing the hard work of eating right and exercising. <laughs> <laughs> it does always seem funny to me when I see ads for various drugs. It, it just feels a little wrong that I should be going in to tell my doctor what I need as opposed right. to my doctor who went to school for a very long time to right. figure out what's wrong with me. Yeah, and some of these doctors are just, they're right. caught in between a rock and a hard place. You know, they don't want to over-prescribe, but mm-hmm. when their patient comes in demanding it, what do you do? Right. 
So it's a whole yeah. world. It's a very another secret world, yeah. the pharma industry, and yeah. it's really fun from a writer's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like that it would be very difficult. I think it's hard enough to edit your own writing in a book to figure out what you know wonderful story do I have to leave behind, but to then adapt it for TV. Well, it's not because you have series, and it's actually mm-hmm. a more freedom. It's like you yeah. know writing a ten-hour movie. Mm-hmm. And also, I always think of my brother, who's yeah. a longshoreman in LA. Uh-huh. And I just think, okay, what would he watch? And so that's my guide. Uh-huh. Um, you know, what would the average person uh, really understand, and how can I grip them? Uh-huh. And you know, there's plenty of juicy tidbits in in all the books, really. And so you've done so many different realms. You've worked mm-hmm. in so many different realms. So starting in business, and then we've got Hollywood, big pharma. Is there one that speaks to you the most, or does it feel like they all tie together? Like this seems to a bit. Well, kind of what my uh, North Star is, uh-huh. is I love to find a story that affects all of us mm-hmm. somehow, that touches all of us, even though we don't know about it, mm-hmm. and something that hasn't been done before. Uh-huh. So that's, um, you know, whether it's Hollywood, sort of the secret history of it, Mm -hmm. or take you inside the uh, Mm -hmm. wild toad ride of the pharmaceutical industry, Uh or lately I've been going to the Four Corners where Mm -hmm. I've been working with the Hopi Indians and Uh watching the theft of their artifacts and how they get smuggled out of the country and sold Mm -hmm. in Paris for millions Uh of dollars. So um, it's fun to sort of, you know, go to a place where no one else is going and, Mm -hmm. you know, turn over those rocks and see what you see because I want to find something that's going to affect you mm-hmm. and you and you. <laughs> that's the goal, right, as a, as a journalist anyway. And so it, was that the genesis to a bit for your story from the Smithsonian Magazine? Right. About, about the artifacts as well. So is that something that's interested you for a long time? Uh, well, being in the West, yeah. 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 Well, I think we all, are Westerners, <laughs> like that a lot. But um, also, you know, there's sort of an interest with um, Standing Rock. And mm-hmm. you, we see more Native American activism. And in this mm-hmm. country, I don't think we, all of us, appreciate the mm-hmm. culture and the cities that they built and the languages they created and mm-hmm. the art and especially the spirituality. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who've been taking care of the earth for, you know, millennial. Mm-hmm. And now I see a lot of um, groups and other peoples, whether they're wilderness people, the parks people, hikers, mm-hmm. listening or going back to the indigenous ways mm-hmm. and how to take care of our land and prevent uh, some of the damage from uh, rising seas and wildfires. Uh-huh. Do you think that that, and Native Americans in particular, is that sort of more of a current trend? It makes me think of like Wind River that just came out oh, this past yeah. year. And so moving more towards, I guess, non-traditional stories, I should say. Yeah. Like we're seeing more women, seeing maybe more Native American presence. Right. Yeah, and I think it's great. You know, hostiles, there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, Longmire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot uh-huh. of uh, tales out there, and it's mm-hmm. time that their stories do come forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of great rock and roll was started by Native Americans. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the reverb, uh, yeah. the guitar, a lot of the chanting, um, the gospel, the blues, yeah. all of that came from Native American tribes. Oh, fascinating. Isn't I that? did not know that. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that either. Yeah, there's a great movie, Rumble, uh-huh. that'll tell you all about that. So, yeah, so we're starting to appreciate the original Americans. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And so when you write, do you think ahead to, speaking of movies, do you think ahead to where things may wind up adapted? Because Mr. and Mrs. Hollywood was turned into a documentary. You've consulted 
do you think ahead at all that way? No, I just try and tell a good story. And Mm -hmm. it often means setting scenes and developing Mm -hmm. characters. And that can lead into cinematic writing, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, I've told that's how I write, almost like a novel. But um, I don't set out to, oh, this would make a good movie. Uh It's how you write, how you tell the story, how you Mm -hmm. grab the reader by the throat. Right, right. And absolutely, Mr. and Mrs. Hollywood reads like fiction. (laughs) It doesn't even read like nonfiction. It doesn't read like... A dull text. It reads like gripping. Like, what's going to happen oh, next? How did this happen? Thank you. Wouldn't so. you have loved to have been at some of those parties <laughs> yes. in the fifties, the sixties? Yeah. And I would have loved to see what happened after at the Blues Brothers after party, which you talk about oh. in the book too. Which I don't know if would have happened today. You trying to share that story? Right. The Blues Brothers, of course, took place on the Universal lot, mm-hmm. and um, Belushi, uh, God love him, John Belushi was just a wild man, drinking and doing all kinds of coke and um, drugs. Mm-hmm. And the uh, in between breaks, and once they were done for the day, he jumped into a Nazi logo jeep and started it up, drove it off the lot, and went on uh, Highway 101, <laughs> speeding and changing lanes, half drunk, half uh, intoxicated with who knows what. And um, one of the producers could see it from the tower. The Universal Tower is right over uh, um, Highway 101, so he was calling. You know, screaming to get all the security out there, and instead the cops and the mm-hmm. highway patrol got him uh-huh. and uh, bailed. Of course, Lou bailed him out of jail because <laughs> that's what he had to do, <laughs> right? But other than that, there was no consequence really. So, and you're right, that could not happen today. You know, he'd, there'd be choppers, there'd be be like an O.J. Simpson <laughs> I was episode. Say that's exactly what I was going to say like O.J. <laughs> right? We'd have all sorts of news media on him, yeah. And what was happening, and especially I know in the book it talks about how funny it was to see this prop logoed truck suddenly driving through Hollywood. Too. Right, a real motor. Right. <laughs> yeah. So so many great stories in your book. So um, lots of great stories about Hollywood. It's mm. not just even about the Wassermans. It is Hollywood history, but in such a fun way. Oh, so if thank people, you. Absolutely. Yeah. And Kathleen, if people want to keep up with you and find out about your next project or where they can watch Blood Medicine when it finally comes yeah. out, uh, where can they find you on social media? Well, they can uh, find me at K-Sharp, author on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. You can also find me at my website, uh, KathleenSharp.com, and do write me if you have any comments or suggestions. I love to hear from my fans. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And I am Zoe Hewitt. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Real Zoe Hewitt. Thank you so much for joining us on Book Circle Online. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. From executive producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menunos, and Jeffrey Masters, thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at Book Circle On. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in. The views expressed herein are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.